Well, good morning, Journey family. How are we? Good, good, good. Well, as always, it is good to see you. Uh, let me just start by thanking you for the way that you honored uh, myself and my family last week. Um, probably easier for me to say thank you now than it would have been in the moment because I don't think I could have talked very well. Um, we were overwhelmed just uh, with just the honor that you showed us. And, and let me just say that it has been one of the greatest honors and joys of my life to fill this pulpit for 11 months. And so it, it and I'll say this too, that it, part of the joy in that has been to preach to you because I love you and because you guys are so encouraging and you're so ready to, to just grasp, grasp and grapple with the word of God. And so, and just, just thank you for that. And so excited for what the future holds here, excited for what the Lord is gonna do. He, he has brought us this far, not to just leave us, but to continue to do what he wants to do. He will complete the work that he has began here and it's gonna take a long time and I'm ready for it. So thank you for that. I just wanted to say that off the top. Um, we're gonna start a new series today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up into John chapter two. John chapter two, yes, we're gonna jump into a different gospel in 2023, Matthew. You know, that's, that's for down the road now. Uh, we're gonna be in John chapter two. And we're starting a series today called This Changes Everything. What is this? Well, this that changes everything are the seven signs in the Gospel of John. John records what he calls seven signs that Jesus did. Seven different signs. They were, they were miracles, but, but John refers to them as signs. Now, why would he do that? Well, because he was saying that they were, those miracles were not the point. Like in and of themselves, the, the, the grasping of what was going on has to go beyond what was seen on the front side of it just as some sort of like miracle or God flexing his power that, that really beyond that, behind that, there was, there was something else going on. These signs were pointing to something bigger than the sign itself. And it's interesting that John tells us at the end, I don't know how many of you read the end of books. I typically don't, I like the anticipation. But if you read the end of John, John chapter 20, verse 30, this is what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we're gonna be looking at these seven signs as we build up to Holy Week. Believe it or not, Palm Sunday is only eight weeks away. And so we are, we're building up into Holy Week by looking at the seven signs in the gospel of John. And it makes a lot of sense because John's gonna show us a lot about newness and the newness of life. And we are in a new season in our church. We're in a new chapter. And it would only make sense to look to our leader, Jesus Christ, to see what type of life is he bringing? What type of life are we supposed to find when we believe in his name? And so today we're tackling the first sign, water into wine, water into wine. And this sign's always fascinated me as a Preacher's kid, we didn't serve wine uh, at communion uh, in a Baptist church. We had Welch's. Um, and so I just always have found this a fascinating, fascinating story. Like, what is this all about? What is he up to? 
Because unlike healing disease, which is gonna be some of the signs, unlike blindness that's been healed, unlike even raising someone from the dead, although that would be the epitome of coolness, walking on water maybe, and then water into wine, they just seem to be, I don't know, just like a coolness factor to it. Like the other ones are cool, but they're clearly like trying to help people, trying to break people out of bondage, trying to heal broken hearts. But for something about water into wine is just different than those. It just kind of seems like it was a flex. It was like this soft flex that Jesus did just to be like, yeah, I could do that. Pretty awesome, isn't it? On the surface, that's kind of what it looks like. But, but John says there's more to it. So, so what on earth is John trying to show us about Jesus turning water into wine? And why is this the first sign? And, and if you look at the gospels, this seems to be, quite frankly, the first sign that he did, period. Interesting. So through this sign, I believe John is showing us the life that we can find in Jesus because he says as much in John chapter 20. The question is, what is he showing us? And to get a glimpse of this life, I want us to consider three things. I want us to consider how the water turns into Jesus's wine, good wine, and new wine. Jesus's wine, good wine, and new wine. How does it turn into Jesus's wine? Well, the center of the story is not water. It's not wine. It's not the wedding. The center of the story is Jesus, and it starts with Jesus as a friend. Let's look at the first two verses of John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now we don't know who the wedding's for. Uh, we're not made privy to that. Uh, we don't know who it's for, but we do know what weddings were like in the first century. These were not Baptist weddings. No offense if you had a Baptist wedding. I had a Baptist wedding. Uh, Dan did my wedding. So mine was a little longer than 30 minutes, but most Baptist weddings are 30, and that's because we asked him to, to preach the gospel. No, uh, that was on purpose. But, you know, most Baptist weddings, 30 minutes, light snack. Um, that's not this. First century weddings were long, possibly even a week long. They were large celebrations. They were, they built up to certain things. They were large feasts with family and close friends, and they were filled with immense joy. And the bride, and really predominantly the bridegroom and his family were the hosts of the party. And it's into this type of a party that Jesus finds himself invited. Now, I don't know about you, but some of us, including me, kind of, if you really pressed me on it, especially when I was younger, kind of pictured Jesus as probably like not really going to weddings. Like he's kind of floating around in a sense, like glowing, healing people, preaching, like I'm not even sure the brother sleeps. You know, you're just like, there's just something unique about this brother. And so to think about this, what, what's so interesting to me is just how ordinary this moment feels. Jesus, his mother, his friends, his disciples, they're invited to a wedding, a wedding party. And so Jesus, at, at the least a friend, possibly even a very close friend, if not family of the betrothed. And so he shows up at this commonplace yet celebratory moment, a feast among friends. He's, he's not too important for it. He's not too, too far off for it. He's there having a party, enjoying 
the union of a bride and a bridegroom. He's a friend. And this is still when he can show up this way, somewhat inconspicuously, because his public ministry is kind of just now launching off. To this point in the Gospel of John, John the baptizer has singled him out in the first chapter as he has said, behold the one who, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had been preparing the way for the coming Messiah, saying, I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. And then Jesus walks by and John says, behold the Lamb of God who, com who comes to save the world. And yet, unless you're within earshot of John in that moment, you're not really made privy to this yet. And so a few of John's disciples are now following Jesus because they were there and they hear John point to Jesus. So they leave John to go follow Jesus. But other than that, not much has really publicly taken place outside of John the baptizer's proclamation. But Mary knows who Jesus is, her son. Look at verse three, how the story unfolds. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let's look at this scenario. It's, it's a big feast among family and friends put on by the bride and the bridegroom. And in the middle of the feast, they run out of wine. In the ancient world, this is a major faux pas because there's not like an assortment of beverages at your disposal. It's not like Jesus could have told Mary like, well, you know what? I bet they really love a cherry limeade with crushed ice from Sonic. And Mary, if you ordered on the app before any time, actually, it's half off. Like we could do a lot of good things here for a lot less money than you think. It's not as though he could, he could pull in these other beverages. And then you take that, it's not just the fact that beverages were not plentiful, but that wine in particular was a sign of joy. It was a sign of joy. All throughout the scripture, wine is often spoken of as a symbol of prosperity, both personally and socially for the nation of Israel. Wine brings joy to the heart. There's this picture that when, when God fully and finally restores all things, like the wine vats will be overflowing. Wine is a symbol of both prosperity, but then the lack of it is a symbol of lack of blessing, lack of of judgment. And we can get into the weeds on how different the wine was back then, how it was more diluted. And yes, it was, but it was still able to make one intoxicated if consumed with, without caution and in excess. And like much of God's good creation, it's not always the consumption that's the problem, but it's the worship and the indulgence of it that is. So we get back to the story. Mary wants Jesus to help this couple avoid the shame of running out of wine too early in their own wedding, this symbol of blessing, this symbol of joy is gone and she's trying to get Jesus to intervene. And Jesus' response to her is telling, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, my mom has slapped my adolescent mouth for a lot less. <laughs> Seriously, now forgive her. I, was, I, I probably deserved it. It probably was not less. It was probably a lot worse than this. But if you look at the actual like, context of the culture, this was not an insult to Mary. But it is interesting because it's basically more like him saying, lady, I don't know what this has to do with me. Lady, not mom. Lady, what's going on with that? Well, a commentator that I read, David Guzik, he thinks that this is Jesus now kind of on the precipice of public ministry. 
And he is in essence saying that the dynamic of the relationship with Mary has changed a little bit. Like he wants to honor his mother because he's perfect, he's holy, and that's a command of the Lord. But throughout the Gospel of John, you'll notice that Jesus is always seeking the Father's guidance on what to do. He's, he's saying, I, I don't do anything, I don't say anything that the Father has not told me to say. And it's almost, David Guzik says, it's almost as if he's telling Mary, not yet, and then goes and seeks the Father, and the Father gives him permission to do it. This is not just Jesus then at the center of the story as a friend. This is Jesus at the center of the story as Lord. And Mary notices it because her response, I think, is kind of comical. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Why do I find that funny? I just find it funny that he's like, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. And she's like, just do whatever he says to do. Like, he's gonna do it. I know him. He's gonna do it. Just do what he tells you to do. Jesus, go talk to your father and I know you'll do it. That's, that's kind of why I think it's funny. Just the whole dynamic is odd. But I also think it's, while funny, no doubt Mary would say the same thing to us. Do whatever he tells you to do. When moments in life come where joy is running out, where blessing feels as though it's been drained to its last drop in your life, I think Mary would say, just do what Jesus tells you to do. Just do what he tells you to do and trust him. Because we don't just see Jesus as friend and we don't just see Jesus as Lord. This shows us another encouraging aspect of the life that Jesus brings. Jesus is approachable. He's approachable. He engages not with the esteemed guests of the party to do this miracle. He doesn't engage with the bride and the bridegroom even, right? He's not coming up to the bride and being like, so are you a Cabernet Sauvignon fan? Or like, were you more of a, I'm gonna go take care of this situation, but I just want to get your, your, your palate figured out. Um, you know, if we're gonna have lamb, do we need to pair that a certain way? Like, that's not what he does. He goes directly to the servants. And this is what he says. Now there were six stone jars, this is verse six. Six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Jesus' first public miracle was actually very private, and it dealt mainly with the servants of the feast. He instructs them what to do, and they do it. The God of the universe in human flesh is speaking behind the scenes to servants and that is how the first miracle, the first sign recorded of Jesus in the gospels occurs. Humble beginnings. Jesus is approachable. Again, David Guzik, this is what he says. In the first temptation in the wilderness, the devil asked Jesus to turn stones into bread for himself. In his first sign, Mary asked Jesus to turn water into wine for others. Jesus refused the first and he did the second. Why? Because he's approachable. He's a friend. He's a servant. But he's Lord. Where do you struggle to relate to Jesus? Maybe none of these things. 
but I would venture to guess that some of us here today in some form or capacity struggle to relate to Jesus in one of these ways. Like, do you struggle to relate to him as a friend? Does he feel far off from you? Do you see him more as just a master and not a friend? Do you feel distantly relate, or relationally distant from him? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you see him so much as your friend, you struggle to ever see him as your Lord. Does he have the right to call you out of what doesn't lead to life in his name and call you into what does lead to life in his name? Or is he simply just your, your co-pilot? Like, does he have a right to speak into your life, maybe even in things that are good, like your hobbies, and just say, like, this is starting to infringe on other important things in your life, and I'm gonna call you to step away from that for a bit. Does he have the ability to do that? Or would you just go, ah, that's not the Lord. He would never, he would never ask me to do that. Does he, does he ask you to, to, to divert your money in certain ways that you're like, man, I earned this money. It's my money. I mean, I can identify with that. That's a struggle. You, you want me to give that? I mean, I could, I could use that over here. I could, I could really use that over here, Lord. And you're telling me to just trust you and, and to divert that over here? Is he Lord of your integrity or, or do you find yourself easily able to, well, I, could, I can cross this line this time because here's why. And God's okay with it because he just wants me to be happy. How about loving your neighbor? Is Jesus is your friend and he's your Lord. Do you struggle to relate to him that way or maybe you struggle to relate to him as approachable? Do you run to Jesus in the moment of failure or sin or heartache? Do you run to Jesus or do you try to make yourself presentable first? When he's knocking on your door, are you cleaning the house from the inside yelling, just a minute, just a minute. I gotta get my mess cleaned up before I let you in. He came for the high and the lowly, the influential and the invisible, the powerful and the powerless, the master and the servant. He is approachable, he is a friend, yet he is Lord and this is Jesus's wine. And believe it or not, Jesus' wine is some really good wine. It's really good. It's the best, actually. Look at verse eight or seven. Let's start back again at verse seven. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drank freely, then the poor wine. Sounds like a good idea. But, when, but you have kept the good wine until now. Isn't it fascinating that the matter or that the master of the feast is blown away by the quality of the wine that Jesus made? The master implied that this is a reversal of course or a reversal of the norm, so to speak. 
But it's interesting that wouldn't, we would expect that the bridegroom probably followed the norm. Like we, we would not expect that the, the bridegroom is probably just as shocked as anybody. Like, oh, wow, this is really good. We're, uh, okay, sweet, very good. And before you go thinking like, okay, so, so this is interesting. Like Jesus makes really good wine. No, I think what is, I've looked over this. I think every time I've read this until I started really preparing to teach this, what's interesting is that I think the bridegroom probably did follow the norm. He probably did serve his best wine at the beginning. And what that tells us, what John, I think, is trying to show us, because I think John includes this tidbit, this detail that the, the master said that for a reason. I think he's trying to show us that even the best that we have to offer, Jesus's is always better. It's always better. Like we have good wine symbolically, so to speak, but he's got the best wine. And before you th start thinking like, so Jesus makes better wine than like Camus, that's not the point. This is symbolic. This is a symbolic gesture. While God is the maker of heaven and earth and is fully capable of making best, the best wine and the best flavor and the best nuance of fermentation, I believe that first and foremost, the quality of this wine Jesus made is a sign. It's a sign. It's not the point. What is the point? That Jesus is coming to bring us the deepest joy life has to offer. Jesus is coming to bring us the deepest joy, the best joy life has to offer. This is what George Morrison says. Are there not many things which Jesus brought to the world the same in kind as the world had always had, yet overtopping them all in worth and in excellence? There was love and joy and kindness in the world before Jesus, but it was a different kind altogether after Jesus. And notice the servants and how he tells them to fill the jars. Jesus wants to fill our life with his deep joy and love to the brim. To the brim. And his wine is a sign of that. Jesus has come into our midst to fill our cups. Yes, it was the servants who put the water into the jars, but Jesus instructed them to fill them and fill them they did all the way to the brim. And the life Jesus is bringing is one that isn't half-hearted or halfway or just enough. He is coming to bring us life to the brim. In fact, John in John chapter 10 would say it like this. The thief, or Jesus says in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or some of your translations might say, have it to the full, to the brim. This is the life that Jesus is bringing to us. He's come to bring abundant life, to be the filler of your cup with his wine of love and blessing and joy. And that's why James Hamilton says this, John 2 shows that God layers good gifts on top of good gifts, bringing out the best at the right time. Satan suggests that God withholds good gifts from his people. But as Jesus makes the Father known by facilitating plentiful celebration at a wedding, he exposes Satan as a liar. 
The God of the Bible is revealed by his son, Jesus, to be the one who ensures abundant wine for the wedding feast. It's a sign. The point is not how much wine there was. The point is what he was pointing to that he was going to do. And this changes everything. It changes everything. As I've said for 11 months now, on repeat, because I know many of you identify with it and probably some of you identify with it and you don't even realize it or you don't wanna admit that you identify with it. The lie that we are told and that almost all of us probably weakly believe from the enemy is that Jesus is coming to take life, not to give it, to rob us of joy and blessing, not fill us to the brim with it and that his love is conditional. That's what we're told. And half the time we believe it. Despite the evidence of the other in our life from God himself, we believe the lie. And when I say joy and blessing, I'm not referring to prosperity, health, wealth, happiness all the time, the way the world would see it. I'm talking about an anchored, deep rooted joy. The same kind of joy that Jesus had despite his circumstances that he went to the cross in joy, not because he enjoyed it, but he goes in joy because he knows that his identity is secure and that he's purchasing for the father, sons and daughters forever. That type of joy, even in the midst of circumstances, we are anchored in it. Our hope anchored, our joy anchored, our love from God unconditional. This is the blessing and the joy that Jesus brings, that we can trust the king and his kingdom and that he is good. And the enemy doesn't typically come to us with some onslaught. Oftentimes it comes in a whisper and a tough moment. Does Jesus really bring you joy, Nathan? If so, where is he now in your mess? How might our life be different if we actually believed that he's come to fill us to the brim with joy in trials, in despair? And I'm just gonna say, I think you gotta set yourself up for that on the front end. I've had enough trials and despair in my life to know that if that's the moment I try to determine if I think God's for me or not, it's too late. You make the foundation now. When that day comes, because it will come, we live in a fallen world, it will come. But when the trials come, when despair comes, I am rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ. And when blessing comes, I'm rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ. Not, I didn't make that blessing come. This is all of God. The joy and abundant life you're looking for in life has one source and it's Jesus Christ. This is Jesus's wine. It's the best of the best and it's offered in abundance now and forever because it's not only Jesus's wine and really good wine, it's new wine. Upon seeing this sign, the response of the disciples in verse 11 is this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What was their response? Belief. What was John saying at the end of his gospel? I've written these things so that you may believe. And upon believing in Jesus, you find life in his name. 
belief. The sign was not initially really meant to wow, even though it's pretty cool. The sign was not initially meant to make us marvel, even though we should. The sign was meant to induce belief through the object of that belief being Jesus, then also to induce life. That's the point of water and to wine. But the question then as we close is what induces that type of belief? What induces that type of belief? Well, John tells us it was because Jesus manifested his glory in the sign. But how did he do that? Well, I think there's four ways. There's four details that John intentionally gives here. He's already told us, I don't tell you everything. So what he does tell us means there's a purpose behind all of it. And there's four details in this, la- in this section, I think, that show us new wine. The first detail is the very first sentence, on the third day. John is counting from John chapter one about the way Jesus has met some of his disciples. The last disciple he calls out is Nathaniel. And then it's basically like three days later. We don't have to know that. Why does John include that it's on the third day? Well, what else happens on the third day in John's gospel and in every gospel? The resurrection, new creation, new life. The first sign we have the fact that is done on the third day and that Jesus is signifying to his followers that he would eventually, yes, maybe die on a cross, but on the resurrection day, on the third day, he's bringing new life. But it's not just the third day. It's not just that. The second detail is that the moment it was revealed, the moment that it happened at is revealing. Like it's not the Day of Atonement. It's not the Feast of Passover. This happens at a wedding. And throughout the scriptures, God refers to his people from Old Testament to new as his bride. That God is the bridegroom, the ultimate bridegroom, and that his people, his church, are his Bride, marriage is a portrait of the gospel from Genesis 2 onward, self-sacrificial love. Marriage is a portrait of the gospel in the New Testament, the Old Testament. It's close to the heart of God. And not only does he use the image of marriage and a wedding throughout history and throughout the scriptures as a metaphor for his relationship to his people, he uses marriage and a wedding as a metaphor for his relationship to his people in the end. Look at Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come. Who's the lamb? Jesus Christ. And his bride, his church has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. On the third day at a wedding, Jesus is asked to create new wine when there was nothing but water available and he does. And it is a sign of renewal, of new creation, of a foretaste of a future wedding between the Lord Almighty and his bride who is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. But 
you know you, I know me. Would I sit down here and say like, I'm part of the bride of Christ? Yes. Would I sit here and say, I'm pure? No. How do we become pure then? Sign or details three and four of the sign tell us that. Because Revelation 19.8 says, how are they made pure? How do they have fine linen? It was granted to them. Grace. It's a gift of grace. And so the last two details point us to that. And the first detail is the hour. When Jesus tells Mary, my hour has not yet come, he is likely meaning, at least partly, the moment of his public sign and miracles. But in the gospel of John, the hour when you hear him refer to the hour throughout the gospel of John, it's referring to Jesus's ultimate betrayal, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the hour. And there's no way Jesus being the son of God was not at least partly also thinking about this hour as well, with it being the third day, with it being a wedding, and he finds himself, his mom says, can you make some wine? And Jesus is flooded with, it's not my hour yet. It's not time for me to make new wine just yet. The hour, but notice also that he tells the servants to fill what? The jars of purification. Jesus is filling the jars meant to purify the Jews for certain times and he's making new wine in those jars, signifying a new way to be pure and have life and joy, not for certain times, for all time. The hour had not yet come for that. Not yet. But the hour eventually would come when he would not just fill purification jars at a wedding, but he would bring new wine as his blood would spill out for the new covenant between God and his people, grounded in grace, and as the scriptures say, purifying us of all unrighteousness. This is Jesus manifesting his glory. And this is a glory, that is a weight, that is an importance that we've never seen in this world apart from Jesus Christ. He manifested his glory and when we see what his wine was pointing to, we can be changed now. As we wait our wedding feast with him and the new creation. Brothers and sisters, would you see the sign and believe? And because that object of that belief is Jesus Christ, may you find life in his name. This is the first sign. As we close today, we're gonna to be observing the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we do not take the Lord's Supper flippantly or lightly, 
However, he doesn't tell you this, but if you take it gluten-freely, that's right there, this, this front table. But he, but he says, we don't take it lightly. We should examine ourselves. We, 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 should, we should seek the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit, show me. Show me areas in my life where I am running from you, where I am not treating you as Lord, where I'm not submitting to your desires for my life. Examine your heart. This is not, as, as, as uh, Jed said earlier, and, and I've said as well, like this is not a place of guilt and shame. This is not a place of condemnation. This table is for those who are in Christ, who have professed faith in Christ. And if that is you, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean there's not conviction and a call to repentance. Examine your heart. Ask the Lord to show you. Because not because you're gonna come up here and take it because now you're perfect, but rather that you are intentionally understanding that you, your body broken for me, your blood spilled out for me, to make a way to relationship with the Father. I don't want to take that lightly, Lord. I don't want to take it lightly. If you're in the room today and you're not a follower of Christ, this table is not for you. It would be meaningless to you anyway. If I were you in the room today, and this is not your story yet, I, I would just spend some time asking Jesus bring life to you, to remove the scales from your eyes that you may actually see him, that you can see past the sign to see the giver of life and that you would then find life in his name by putting faith in his name, that his body broken and his blood spilled for your sin can be your story instead of you dying for your sins. So I'm spending some time praying and then as you see fit, come forward and take the elements after I'm done praying and then we will sing. Our Father, we, um, we are just blown away by the, the way that you bring life that it's just the, the kind of friend that you are, that, that you would keep the party going. And yet that there's something way bigger than that going on in that moment and that you saw it. The wedding of your bride, the blood that must be spilled for her to be pure and righteous. And you did that. Thank you, Jesus, for filling our cups with joy, with hope, with blessing, with forgiveness, and with love that never runs out. Would you change us, those who already believe in you, would you give us even a bigger taste of that life? And for those here who don't yet trust you, would you draw them in by your steadfast always and forever love for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.